0: Father, you are holy, and this is something we prize. We are sinful, and this is something we despise. You created us like you to live in perfect harmony with you, but we didn't fancy you. We wanted to live apart from you. You could have left us to our own destructive ways. You could have damned us, You could have ignored us. You could have turned your back on us. But instead, you came after us. You pursued us. The holy pursuing the unholy. The divine pursuing the human. The sinless pursuing the sinner. It's unexplainable, unimaginable, indescribable, your pursuit of those who spurned you. What mercy that the love of God is active not stationary what grace that the image of god is merely defaced not erased please come hard after us in this text pursue us with these verses for we desperately need to be pursued father we know The preaching of Christ is your appointed means of building the church. That's what I intend to do now. Would you please use it to build your church? I face a task above my ability. But you give your enabling spirit. Use this exposition as gospel balm. Apply it where needed and apply it liberally. Mend us with the gospel. Encourage us with the gospel. Convict us with the gospel. There is instruction in this text that will be hard for us. Hard for us to stomach. Hard for us to live. Hard for us to submit to. It's hard. But it's the good kind of hard. The kind of heart that makes us want to obey. Sin is definitely on display in this text. We are presented with the problem. So please give us the answer. Give us Jesus Christ. Give us the Savior. This is our corporate plea. Amen. It looked more like a circus than a church service. The public worship gathering degenerated into a free-for-all. Praise had been replaced by pandemonium. It was complete bedlam, mass confusion. Welcome to the Sunday morning worship service at Corinth. There were people stretching in the lobby to make sure they didn't pull a hemi during the service. This was a wild one. There was no structure, no orderliness, no rules. Their service looked like traffic in the Philippines. Manila, but in a church service. We don't know if there were 50 people in this church or 350 people in this church. We do know it was dominated by gigantic egos and personal agendas. Despite all their sin, they were astonishingly sure of themselves. They were brashly convinced that how they did church was the correct way. If this was in the 21st century, they would be holding conferences and writing books on how to make the worship service more lively. Their worship services certainly were not boring, nor were they edifying. Paul writes to give them rules for the church meeting. He says, you need to burn those books and cancel those conferences because you don't actually know how to conduct the gathering. We need to bring some order to this chaos. We need to end the bedlam and bring structure. We need some traffic laws. Paul intends to restore order in the assembly. You've seen a a judge slam the gavel and say, order in the court? This is Paul slamming the gavel and saying, order in the church. Paul proceeds, here's what I want you to do when you gather on Sundays. I want you to follow these three rules. A rule on worship, verses 26 through 33a. A rule for women, verse 33b through 35. A rule of warning, verse 36 through 40. I want you to follow these three rules. A rule on worship. A rule for Women, a rule of warning. And it all begins in verse 26. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building Now, let's go through that list item by item. Each person came with a hymn. Now, this could have been a biblical psalm. I want to sing Psalm 63. Well, I want to sing Psalm 89. But I want to sing Psalm 104. Well, we can't sing 64 psalms this morning. This could have been a precomposed hymn, something that was known in the first century. Well, I like this hymn. Let's sing it this morning. This could have been a song of their own composition. I wrote a new song and I want to teach it to our church here at Corinth. God's people have always enjoyed singing. Their singing in the gathering was often accompanied by an instrument of some sort. And you may read this verse and say, Kyle, I kind of like this idea. When is Pastor Jared going to be taking song nominations? Well, You keep listening and you're going to find out. (laughs) Each person came with a hymn and each person came with a lesson. This was some instruction from the Bible, some doctrine they wanted to teach, maybe even in a systematic style. This was some lesson, some teaching. It seems to be different than preaching. Well, I've been studying this, this week in Exodus and I want to tell you about my findings. But I've been walking through Hosea and I need to reveal some deep truths. 50 people wanting to share 50 different Bible studies. That's a recipe for a long service. Each person came with a hymn. Each person came with a lesson and each person came with a revelation. This is probably not a revelation they received earlier in the week. But one that came upon them while studying these lessons. Some revelation from God an infallible message from him. God still communicated with his people this way until his written revelation, the Bible, was fully complete. Each person came with a hymn, each person came with a lesson, each person came with a revelation, and each person came with a tongue or an interpretation. The first three items are spoken in the native language of the hearers. The next two, in some form, require translation. Tongues were an actual language. There were plenty of other words God could have used for ecstatic utterances if he wanted us to to know these were not actual languages. But that word is not used. Tongues made it where there there were no foreigners to the gospel, which was needed in the language melting pot of Corinth. I've spent two sermons arguing for why I believe this gift has ceased. Last week and three weeks ago. I'm not going to rehash all that. This alleged gift of tongues that is going on today is far removed from the Bible tongues. Paul told his church, the way you are doing Sunday morning is not contributing to the building up of the body. Now that should grab us. You can go through the motions of a Sunday gathering, but it not build the body. There can be a lot of speaking and activity, but none of it contributes to people's growth in the word. Their faith is not being built by the gathering. They were doing exhibition, not edification. It demonstrated a high degree of individualized worship. Instead of corporate worship. (laughs) You are not building the church. You are not church building. You are church playing. Playing church. Not actually building a church. Verse 27. If any speak in a tongue. Let there be only two. Or at most three. And each in turn. And let someone. Interpret. The first thing Paul desires to put in order is tongues. This gift must be regulated. Everybody shouldn't come with a tongue. Only two, or at most, three. It seems like they had dozens of people speaking in tongues at the same time. Paul says, no, 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 not simultaneously. One at a time. They, they must be speaking in turn. This is not what they were doing. They were having a tongues fest. Paul lays the ground rules, his procedure for tongues. Here are his regulations. There are four of them. First, only two or at most three. No more. Never should there be more than three people speaking in tongues in a Corinthian church service. Second, One at a time. Never tongue speaking going on at the same time. Third, there must be an interpreter. Someone translating this message from one language into another language so the people in the the gathering hear the translated tongue. Paul is laying out what is permitted and what is prohibited. Verse 28. But if there is no one to interpret it, let each of them keep... Silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Here's the fourth regulation on tongues. If no one is there to interpret, remain silent. In other words, you can control it. Tongues are not ecstatic, bizarre, trance-like experiences. They were never out of your mind revelation. They never put someone in a drug-induced haze. The speakers were not irresistibly driven to ecstatic speech. These were not irresistible urges. The gift of tongues was controllable. It was not an experience of the Spirit in which you could not choose to be silent. The command indicates the speaker could control the use of the gift. Don't say... Well, I I couldn't help myself. The Spirit took over. Nope. The idea that New Testament tongues was ecstatic utterances beyond the control of the speaker is flat out wrong. Here's what we need to know about tongues. Tongues could be true, mistaken, or counterfeited. Tongues could be true, mistaken, or counterfeited. I'll give you Give it to you another way. Tongues could be God given, self induced, or satanic given. In two of those categories, they are Christians God given and self induced. I think someone can think they are speaking in tongues, but they are deceived. They are mimicking what they've seen in a charismatic movement. It's psychological manipulation, gibberish and babbling that goes on under the name of tongues. It can be initiated psychologically. Tongues could also be counterfeited or satanic given. Demonic influences behind it. Tongues had successfully existed in paganism. Many other religions had ecstatic tongues. Satan inspired all those. All you have to do is read the ancient history books to discover that. When you are possessed by a tongue of God, you are. Under control. When you are possessed by a tongue of Satan, you are out of control. Unfortunately, some of the emphasis on the Holy Spirit has not been holy. Unfortunately, some of the emphasis on the Holy Spirit has not been holy. You can have an overemphasis on the Holy Spirit and his gifts in the gathering. In some churches, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit becomes primary and almost exclusive. And they forget that Jesus himself said in John 16, 13, that the ministry of the Holy Spirit would not speak of himself, but rather to draw attention to the person and work of Christ. He is sometimes called the shy spirit. His job is not to shine the spotlight on himself, but on Christ. We should not make the shy member of the Trinity the most upfront member of the Trinity. This will lead to a shallow theology and a de-emphasis on teaching the work of Christ on the cross. We will neglect the whole counsel of God by chasing after a whole slew of experiences. A rule on worship. Orderliness in the church. Ordered tongues first, second, Paul desires to order prophecy. Paul is restraining spiritual gifts. Verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. Like with tongues, there is a limitation placed on the number of those who can prophesy. Tongues and prophecy were at their core similar prophecy spirit inspired utterance tongues spirit inspired utterance the only difference was one was in a language you knew and the other was in a language you did not know just as tongues must be interpreted prophecy must be evaluated the leadership of the church must weigh the prophecies and determine if it was really from God and you say Kyle wait prophets only delivered God's word They didn't make mistakes. In the Old Testament, there were hundreds of prophecies that all came true in excruciating accurate detail. Same with the New Testament. If they bat a thousand, why test them? Because the church was to test everything. 1 John 4, 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. This verse cautions the Christian against believing that anything claiming an origin in the Holy Spirit is automatically from that source. 1 Thessalonians 5.20, Do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold, hold fast to what is good. The apostles seem to be over the church, Prophets seemed to be answerable to the church. Their teaching was tested. The church needed to distinguish true prophecy from pagan prophecy. It was possible under emotionalism to imagine God was speaking to you. So the church had to see if this Christian was really delivering a message from God or not. In the same token, Satan could inspire a false prophet. Satan had his false prophets that attempted to infiltrate the church. The New Testament was not yet complete. So God still sent his word through prophets to local churches. It was vital that churches understand and have a place for prophetic ministry as God ordained it. But those who claimed to be prophets had to be carefully evaluated. The church was to reject crazy ideas passed off as a word from the Lord. These messages could be manufactured. Discern the origin of the prophecies. Examine it under a microscope. Sift through whether it is truly God-given. The church should be able to identify a charlatan with a winning personality and the gift of gab claiming special insight. Verse 30, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. The prophets had the same rules applied to them as the tongue speakers. Do it one at a time and no more than three. Apparently, these prophets were shouting one another down, interrupting one another, talking over each other. They began competing for airtime. They were not courteous and considerate in the gathering. They were not showing the general norms of decency. Prophecies were not prepared speeches. They came on people. Spontaneous revelations. However, just like with tongues, prophecies were not an ecstatic event where the speakers could not control themselves. You are never forced to prophesy. You can be, to prophesy, you can be silent. If it's frenzied, It's not of God. This case in verse 30. If while you are speaking, God gives revelation to another person, here's the guidelines for that scenario. It appears to be a speaker who is standing, giving prophecy. Then he is signaled to stop and sit down, and another stands to speak. This prevented any person from dominating the time allotted. Paul lays some guardrails to keep anyone from monopolizing the church's time. God wanted no competition or contradiction in the messages. There's no hogging of the spotlight. Verse 31. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. They do not lose control in some ecstatic trance. There's never an uncontrollable urgency to speak. Verse 33a, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Let's pause here. God doesn't stir us to confusion. He brings us to harmony. One scholar said the spiritual gifts were intended by God to bring harmony, not disharmony. To bring unity, not disunity. To be a rallying point, not a dividing line. God's intentions for the gifts were not being lived out by the church. And you may ask, Kyle, should FFC set up a prophecy mic and start weighing prophecies? Should FFC set up a prophecy mic and start weighing prophecies? Do we need open mic night? Where there is a prophecy, mic, and we allow open times in the service where people can come to prophesy. You know, the Quakers in their gatherings sit in silence until someone feels moved to speak. That's how they implement this verse. Until someone is moved to speak or sing, they stay silent. Sometimes an entire service passes in Silence. In the Plymouth Brethren services they have no pastor and people bring contributions as they feel led. One historian pointed out that in some traditional Pentecostal churches they have pastors up front to receive the message from God in order to filter through them and they will tell which ones go to the congregation or not. But we don't need to work backwards And put this into our services. Tongues and prophecy have ceased. Their services are going to look different than ours. Because they had gifts that functioned in the church that do not function today. We have the completed word of God. The complete canon. We have God's word written. And no longer need God's word spoken through individuals. It makes sense that a church without a Bible would experience an outpouring of divine revelation. It was needed for these infant churches in the first century. Since the gifts of tongues and prophecy have ended, we don't need to go to this passage looking to mimic what they did in their services and to what we do in our services. The cessation of sign gifts at the end of the apostolic age has been the historic position of the Christian church across denominations, only recently contested with the rise of Pentecostalism in the 70s. It was a consensus not called into question before that. R.C. Sproul said, and I quote, the cessationist position continues to best represent the biblical evidence. End quote. I agree with R.C., Corinth still depended on direct revelation from God. We do not. We have the Word of God. We need to read it to read all of it. We need to teach it to teach all of it, especially the parts we don't like. How do we apply this text when we don't have tongues or prophecy functioning in the church today? How do we apply this text when we do not have tongues or prophecy functioning in the church today? We cannot make this passage mean something today that it did not mean in principle in the ancient world. We are seeking to to pull application from the text. We are entering the process of abstracting application from the text. And we'll do that using an abstraction ladder. Now, this is not original with me. I was first introduced to it, I think, by Haddon Robinson. There is a 2,000-year gap between the biblical world and the modern world. To find application is sometimes very easy. The universal principle just moves right across. If the biblical text commands, love your neighbor, well, what does that mean today? It, It means love your neighbor. That moves straight across without having to climb the ladder. But there are other commands, like in Leviticus, that say, Do not boil a kid in his mother's milk. At face value, you may conclude, well, if I have a young goat and I want to cook it in its mother's milk for dinner tonight, I should think twice. But that is not the point of the ancient text. In that case, way more than 2,000 years separates the biblical world from the modern world because that's an Old Testament command. You must climb the ladder by asking questions like, what is this text prohibiting? Then you discover that this boiling a baby goat in his mother's milk was a pagan practice to worship a pagan god. Then you extract from that an application to not participate in pagan practices. You see how that works? Now let's do it with our text. Prophecy and tongues were very central to the work of the church but only for a time. They seem to have nearly ceased to exist once we get to the pastoral epistles. Corinth did not have the complete word of God. We do. The canon wasn't closed for them yet. It is for us. They are told to interpret tongues, evaluate prophecies, all in an orderly manner. Today, the application for us is intentional, structured worship is pleasing to the Lord. Interpreting tongues, evaluating prophecies, all in an orderly manner. Today the application for us is intentional, structured worship is pleasing to the Lord. God is a God of order. And his worship services should be worship services of order. God is a God of order. And his worship services should be worship services of order. Though we may not always be conscious of it, all of our forms communicate something. That is why it is important for us to think carefully about what this service looks like. How we do the corporate gathering says something about God. And it will either say something true or something false. We want order because God is a God of order. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, the verse testifies. We communicate something about God's character by how orderly we are in the service. This should underscore the importance of every aspect of what happens here on a Sunday. God wanted the creation order reflected in the corporate gatherings. From tiny atoms to giant galaxies, see the order of God. In creation, God took chaos and void, then ordered it. His creative work brought order. God acted to bring to the disorder primordial chaos of darkness. We we do not want to fail to bear witness to that in our gatherings. God brought order and peace and harmony. There's an evening and a morning. There were seasons. One of the Corinthians' biggest problems was disorder in public meetings. Paul sought to restore order because their gatherings lied about who God was, they testified something false about God's character. God doesn't want any outbursts in the service. God doesn't want any outbursts in the service. Public outbursts were not to be tolerated, even if they were under the guise of tongues or prophecy. In this church, there were sudden spontaneous outbursts of tongue speaking without an interpreter. There were prophets speaking over one another and through one another. You don't talk out of place in the corporate gathering. You do not disrupt the services. You do not level objections or protest. If if anyone stands up and interrupts a service at Faith Family Church, they will be removed. God hasn't given you anything that requires you to interrupt the gathering. We've had people walk out when they didn't like something I preached. Now that hasn't happened in like four months or so. So obviously I'm not preaching hard enough. Walking out is fine. Interrupting is not. We never hand the mic to people. There's order here. Even in our times of silence, they are planned and ordered. A rule on worship. Orderly tongues and orderly prophecies. That's the rule. I want orderly tongues and I want orderly prophecies. That's the rule on worship. Now, a rule for women. Verse 33b. As in all the churches of the saints... The women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak but should be in submission as the law also says. The question is not will the Bible offend us? The question is when will the Bible offend us? Answer verse 34. How are you going to deal with the Bible when it offends you. Well, Gordon Fee is convinced that verses 34 and 35 are not in the canon. They were not inspired. That's one way to deal with them. Just take them out. Gordon Fee is the most po- has the most popular commentary on First Corinthians. He was assembly of God theologian, uh, Pentecostal with a seatbelt. Verse 34. Women should keep silent in churches for they are not permitted to speak. Verse 35 If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. This sounds deplorably oppressive and is particularly problematic to our gender sensitive ears. We don't rip uncomfortable verses out of the Bible. We deal with them as inspired scripture. This is the third situation in this chapter where Paul wants silence from people. First time, silence if there is no tongue interpreter. Second time, silence while other prophecies are being delivered. Third time, silence from women in the gathering. Now how far does this go? Is it absolute? Through the duration of the gathering, women can't say anything. During the handshaking time, they can't talk to one another. I'm seeing your faces like, what is a handshaking time? These churches used to stand up in the service and shake hands. We don't do it here. Can women say amen? Can women sing specials or sing a solo in a trio? I'm not big on solos or trios or quartets or choirs. I think all singing should be congregational singing. I don't have a verse on that but I have a prophecy and <laughs> is this command absolute under any circumstance whatsoever women can't speak they can't say hello can't say God bless you I'm praying for you hello my name is Sandy hopefully not that deep. It sounds like an absolute ban on women speaking in church. Does this directive apply only to a particular situation? I think it does. To be clear, what I am not trying to do is rescue Paul from himself. Paul was not in heaven going, oh man, I I really hope Kyle softens this. I had a very blunt day when I wrote 1 Corinthians and I wish I could have added a qualifier, but... No, God inspired this. We need no qualifiers. We do need context. Context will help us. There are three options, three views among conservative scholars, all defended with various degrees of sophistication. Option one says women are not to speak in tongues. Some think the Corinthian women were responsible for the abuse of tongues and Paul was saying women do not speak in tongues. I don't think that's it, actually. Although some theologians have stated that if women stopped speaking in alleged tongues in the modern church that the tongues movement would cease in a day. I can't remember who said that. For the life of me, I can't recall. I think it was Daniel (laughs) Hurd. You're welcome. All right, option one says women are not to speak in tongues. Option two says women are not to teach men. This position contests it is more likely referring to women speaking as ordained teachers in the church. This is taught in Timothy. Let women learn in all submissiveness and do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Women are not to be ordained as pastors or do the function of a pastor elder, which is teaching the corporate gathering now hear me i believe the bible teaches that first timothy 2 is clear i just don't think the bible is teaching that from this verse option one says women are not to speak in tongues option two says women are not to teach men option three says women are not to weigh prophecies i hold to option three pretty firmly to it i think the context is clear During the evaluation time of these prophecies, women were speaking out of order. They were asking disruptive, challenging questions in the meeting. It was a serious breach of decorum, of order. These women were apparently speaking in the church in ways that brought shame to the congregation. They were disrupting the worship, and it was unbecoming of a lady. Now, this was a sin against... The elders and ascend against their husbands. Let me show you that. First, sinning against the elders. There was to be silence while the evaluation of prophecies took place, presumably by the elders, pastors. Same, same meaning. Elders, pastors in the church. Assumably, while the prophecies were being weighed, women were speaking up and asking questions and interjecting perhaps defiant questions, loudly arguing and debating and being contentious with the elders. They were wanting in on the final evaluations of doctrine. But order called for women to remain silent while the judging process took place. The elders were to evaluate. These women wanted in on a realm of judging divine utterance. And in an official church context but they were not permitted in the oral weighing process of the prophecies that's for the leaders of the church which we know from first Timothy was exclusively male the elders were the metaphorical supreme court highest authority in the church on these matters the apostolic writings and the preaching served as a criterion to evaluate so you can see the elders Sifting and evaluating and talking, then suddenly women interrupting with interrogating questions and weighing prophecy like they were elders. Women were not to be involved in the evaluation of prophetic speech. Women were, were never officers in the church, never permitted to be, never were superintendents of, of the worship. These women were first sitting against the elders, second they were sinning against their husbands. They were not letting their husbands take the lead on this church issue. Well, I'm going to handle this myself. Wait a minute. There is an order. What does verse 34 say? They should be in submission as the law says. Well, what is the law? That's pointing back to the creation narrative. Probably Genesis. Your cross-examining and repetitive interruption breaks the headship principle in Genesis. You don't suspend headship during worship. You honor it. And a key to their talking, when it says women are not to talk, and a key to their talking was that they are not in submission while talking. See that in verse 34? When you raise questions during the weighing process, you usurp the authority of your husband. Some scholars have even said that the wives were criticizing their husband's prophecy in public. That's a healthy marriage. Or disagreeing with his judgment on the prophecy. That's a healthy pastor and pastor's wife. Paul wanted to maintain creation order among the sexes even during the outpouring of spiritual gifts. Verse 35. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. The corporate gathering was no place for them to express their questions in a disruptive way. They are going beyond their biblical rules, ignoring their loving leadership in the home and their godly oversight of the elders. We honor God's order of leadership in the church. That's a simple statement. We honor God's leadership, God's order of leadership in the church. Many women in our church are gifted teachers and leaders, but those gifts are not to be exercised over men in the church. You say, Kyle, are you saying there's never an appropriate time for women to ask questions or give insight? Absolutely not. But you can put that on social media, and I'm sure some will there are many informal meetings and Bible study times where men and women may share equally in exchanging questions and insights. But when FFC comes together in corporate worship, it is exclusively male, elder-led, pastor-led, which leads us to a point of truth that you men need to hear. A husband should be teaching his wife the Bible at home. A husband should be teaching his wife the Bible at home. Men, you should be teaching your wife. You need to be more theologically advanced than her. Your job is not just to make the money. Your job is to lead her spiritually. Take this new seminar we're going to offer on family worship. You say, Kyle, my kids are out of the house. Well, family worship in the house still goes on for empty nesters. This teaching, this teaching the Bible to your wife at home, does not have to be a mini church service. It can be answering questions when she asks them with an open Bible in her hand. Don't look for a church that has 400 women's Bible studies for your wife to join. The Bible study you need to be concerned about is the one where you are teaching her. Would your activity at home be considered as teaching your wife? Wife, may I ask you a question? Why do you not want to learn from your husband? Outside the corporate gathering, why do you want to learn from all these other men? The women in our text bypassed their husbands and went straight to the elders. They had no interest in talking to their husbands about this matter. They wanted to be a part of the elder group. Women should not be always trying to be in the elder group. Always wanting to talk theology with the elders. Always wanting to meet with the elders alone. Without her husband. Always trying to be with the pastors. Wishing there was a third Timothy that allowed women to be pastors. A lady told my wife, not recently, but stated this. Why will your husband... And the, uh, Why will your husband and the other elders at FFC not meet with women alone? I could never be a part of a church where the pastors would not meet one-on-one with me and talk theology. And Sarah said, my, my, my husband will meet with you and your husband and talk. My husband will meet with you and me if your husband is not a Christian or in some sin but he's not going to meet alone with you. As this conversation is recounted, I I think the bigger question is, why do you want to talk theology with a pastor while your husband is not present? Why not learn from your Christian husband at home who is a theologically solid brother who would be glad to answer your questions and teach you? In fact, he wants to. Wives, don't be chasing after pastors to get in their little group. Your group is with your husband at home. Now, please do not misunderstand me and make this sound harsh. I so wrestled with this on how to state it and rewording it. And I think, oh, it, yes, this would be the text that falls on a holiday weekend. <laughs> For the wife who is timid, and always nervous to speak to pastors. You shouldn't be that way. We are here for you. We delight in answering your questions. Our doors are always open for any theological question. We are here to guide you through that. But that is not the spirit of these women in the text. They were bossy women who wanted to be pastors themselves. And continually minimize their husbands by refusing to be taught by them. This is not a wife saying, hey, I asked my husband this question and he wasn't sure, so he said I should ask you. That's all good and wonderful and very appropriate. That is a thousand miles away from what was happening in Corinth. And you may ask, well, what about women who do not have a husband at home? Well, of course, this text assumes unmarried women had access to the elders and their families for help. Quite a few of you have husbands who are not Christians. In fact, you're here this morning. as a holiday weekend, so he came with you. You're a Christian, and he's not a Christian. Or you have a husband who, who claims to be a Christian, but shows no real fruit of repentance, no desire for the gathering. Paul doesn't address single women, widowed women, divorced women, because single women were not the problem. It was the married women. The pastors at FFC have never refused to meet with any single woman in our church, or married woman in our church for that matter. We just simply bring our wives along for that meeting. What about prophecy in chapter 11? What about women prophesying in chapter 11? Kyle, explain that one to me. Okay. You may recall chapter 11 said women were prophesying in the corporate gathering. Now, there are scholars who say it wasn't in the corporate gathering. I believe they're stretching. I think it was in the corporate gathering. I told you I would deal with that when we arrived at chapter 14. Well, we're here. Chapter 11, women prophesying in the gathering. Chapter 14, women are to remain silent in the gathering. Wait a minute, what? I want to deal with these seeming contradictions. Women speaking with approval in one place and forbidden to speak in another place. You must interpret the earlier by the latter. Paul circles back around and gives clarity on the women prophesying. In the New Testament, women had the gift of prophesying. Women gave prophecies. We know this. There were women prophets. In Acts 21, Philip's four daughters prophesied. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter is explaining the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, he quotes the prophet Joel, Your young women shall dream dreams, and your old men shall prophesy. The gift of prophecy was now something both men and women could exercise. And it's clear there were women prophets at Corinth. So whatever speaking is forbidden here, it was not the speaking of prophesying. Paul has no problem with them exercising that gift. One theologian comments, but what we mustn't do, however, is what some are trying to do. We mustn't take the mere fact of women who had the supernatural gift of prophecy in the New Testament and extrapolate from that fact a general warrant for women preaching. The gift of tongues and prophecy have ceased. There is no new revelation from God. God does not give the gift of prophetic utterance to women or men anymore. So we cannot press 1 Corinthians 11:4 into service in, in, in the support of an egalitarian agenda. The tension between chapter 11 and chapter 12 releases when you realize that this gift is no longer functioning and even women that gave prophecies sat in silence so the elders could evaluate the prophecies. These two texts are easily mariable when you understand that. Prophecy is not the same thing as preaching. Prophecy is spirit-inspired message that we believe has ceased. Our situation is a bit different from Corinth. Prophecy, that's you giving new revelation. Preaching, that's me declaring old revelation. If, if you say prophecy is preaching, then you get into a mess when you get to this verse. William Perkins had a book entitled The Art of Prophesying. It's a preaching book. And I think the title is unhelpful. Saying prophecy today, which is what some do, many do, saying prophecy today is applying God's word to people's life, I think that just muddies the water. And then when you get to passages like this, you weaken your cessationist position. I heard Garrett Kell say he regularly prays for the gift of prophecy. I don't. I don't think it exists anymore. I think that de-supernaturalizing of the gift to simply sermon application, someone saying, oh, you were talking right to me, that that's a misunderstanding of the gift. Well, That was more than you all paid for, so let's move on. Orderliness in the church. I want you to see orderly tongues, orderly prophecy, orderly women. There were three rules. A rule on worship, orderly tongues, orderly prophecy. A rule for women. What was the rule for women? Don't desire to exercise authority in the church that belongs to the elders. Instead, desire to learn doctrine from your husband at home. Don't desire to exercise authority in the church that belongs to elders. Instead, desire to learn doctrine from your husband at home. Now, I know you're still writing. I've got to move on. We'll give you this later. All right, a rule on worship, a rule for women, a rule of warning. Look at verse 36. Or was it from you that the word of God came Or are you, I can just hear Paul saying this, are you the only ones it has reached? Paul is bitingly sarcastic. The Corinthians acted as if the word of God originated with them. They thought they knew better than the apostle. Verse 37, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. This is a principle of authority. Paul is flexing his apostolic muscle. He states that his apostolic authority is binding. Paul acknowledged the inspiration and authority of what he was pinning. He's claiming what he's writing is scripture. That it's a God-breathed edict. Verse 38. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. He should not be recognized in the church... And he will not be recognized as being in the church in the end. Anyone who will not recognize Paul's voice will face peril. They will face final judgment. If you ignore God's word, you will be in the end ignored by God. If you are unable to acknowledge these authoritative writings, you will face final judgment. This is a warning. This is a word of warning. If you say you do not know this writing, God will say, I do not know you. You show you are truly a Christian by submitting to these hard, inspired words. The Corinthians were guilty of devaluing the unique authority of God's word. Don't you be guilty of it. Verse 39. So, my brothers, I'm imagining their eyes are just spinning right now. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid Speaking in tongues. Paul is correcting the improper use of tongues and prophecy. He is not saying they shouldn't take place in the church at Corinth. These verses scare some people from becoming complete cessationists. Paul says, don't forbid it. To whom is he speaking? To whom is he speaking? To the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth did not have the completed word of God. They needed new revelation. I heard one pastor from one of the largest Southern Baptist churches in the country say that the Bible tells me not to forbid speaking in tongues. So I won't. We should never forbid the exercise of any spiritual gift as long as it is done biblically. I would agree, but simply add, nor should we give credence... To any spiritual gift that has ceased, like healings and miracles and the other sign gifts. Verse 40. But all things should be done decently and in order. But all things should be done decently and in order. This is a perfectionist preacher's favorite verse. (laughs) I have it tattooed on my arm. This is the first verse Presbyterians learn as a child. (laughs) We have uh, so many of you Presbyterians with us now. I started counting you the other day. It's just growing rapidly. I love you and I welcome you by immersion. It's (laughs) just one of my great joys giving you a hard time. All right. Josephus uses the phrase decently in order, the same phrase that Paul uses here, Josephus uses it. He's a historian, Jewish historian. He uses that same phrase to paint a picture of how the Roman army, you soldiers, to paint a picture of how a Roman army set up their camp. It was detailed and meticulous, and that's how the service should be set up. Now, three closing thoughts. They're short. Tur, short, tur. The Corinthian worship services were chaotic, random, disordered, and formless. They were messy and noisy. Ours should look nothing like that. The Corinthian worship services were chaotic, random, disordered, and formless. They were messy and noisy. Ours should look nothing like that. We do not want disorderly worship We do not want to dissolve into chaos. We don't want to show up with no plan. Did you notice in our text, Paul says nothing about the sermon being part of the worship service? We know from other texts that that was the main part. He doesn't mention any scripture reading from the Old Testament. We know that took place in every service. He's not giving you a prescription to follow here. Paul is seeking to guide the church to a more orderly and fitting approach for corporate worship. They needed structure. They needed an order of worship. And that is what we give you every Sunday. An order of worship. We call it your worship guide. It will guide you through each element of the service. Second statement. Doesn't order kill the Spirit's freedom? Doesn't order kill the Spirit's freedom? (laughs) You theologians, you are so obsessed with rules and procedures. Can't we just be free-flowing? Can't we simply jettison any formality and planning? You worship by recipe, just repeating the same old formula. True cooks don't cook by recipe. And true men of God don't follow procedures. I don't see the Corinthian worship service look like one man speaking to everyone listening in silence. Let's just be free, Kyle. Whatever Paul is saying, he is not discouraging freedom in worship. He's not calling for starched shirts and starched backs and no bending of the knees when you're walking. But you must realize and submit to the text Order is not boring. Order is not enslaving. In fact, order is freedom. For the Corinthians, order was a spirit-quenching word. Have you ever considered that maybe, just maybe, what you are calling spirit-quenching is actually spirit-pleasing? Unorganized worship is not the supreme expression of spirituality. Unplanned spontaneity, we may value that more than God. Vibrancy and order are not enemies, but friends. Vibrancy and order are not enemies, they are friends. Crazy joy and clear order go together like lightning and thunder. Lastly, why do I feel out of order in all this order? Why do I feel out of order in all this order? Non Christian, I just want to speak directly to you, non Christians. Non Christian, this gathering is not supposed to feel like a concert or a coffee shop or chill watching the movie with friends. The God of order makes you feel unordered because you are still in your sin. You must repent and believe the claims of Christ. Father, we often protest against your hard passages or apply them in ways that seem best to us, most convenient to us, and least offensive to us. Forgive us for this. We do confess to you that we find some of this really difficult. But we submit to your word because it is best for us. You know best. So we are not going to clench our fist and grit our teeth and look up to heaven and say you don't know what you're talking about because you're the creator God. You're the God of the world. You created us for your pleasure and whatever order brings you pleasure That's what we will gladly do. In Christ's name, amen.